From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's population is diverse, but its doctors don't reflect that. We'll break down the obstacles of building a community of doctors that truly represents the people who call this state home. You have to do the work, because sometimes people want to say, oh yeah, we want to diversify, but we can't find anybody. Well, this requires work. Reasons for the disconnect and some possible solutions. Then, Purplish explores the challenge of taking party politics out of redistricting. There is no such thing as a permanent majority. And so setting up the structures and mechanisms of governing in such a way that they are fair and representative and that they are constructed to make sure that the will of the people of Colorado is represented in their legislature and in their congressional delegation is always the right thing to do. Hi, I'm Katrina Bryant, and I decided to donate my car, Pepper, to Colorado Public Radio. I'm attached to the car, and I didn't want to just turn it over to someone and have its life be not valued. And so I thought when I heard an ad on CPR for Donate Your Car, my separation anxiety was lowered (laughs) when I thought about that, and I thought that would make me feel great. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. A retiring doctor leaves a void. Dr. Terry Richardson was a primary care doctor with Kaiser Permanente Colorado and Denver Health. She spent her career finding innovative ways to make health care more accessible for marginalized communities. Her departure spotlights Colorado's struggle to build a physician workforce as diverse as its population. To understand the problem more deeply, let's start with CPR health reporter John Daly. He has Dr. Richardson's story. It's a hot, sunny Friday afternoon in Denver City Park. Thousands mingle through booths of paintings, fabrics, and jewelry at the Black Arts Festival. And there's a section called the Health Highway. It's all about health. They're doing the vaccines over there. That's, That's the charismatic Terry Richardson, thin in a white T-shirt and blue jeans. She describes the wealth of resources here, a directory of providers, flyers about the risks of menthol, and protection from a certain high-profile virus. We've got masks, even though, you know, some people think the pandemic is over. It's still here. The masks read, in this together, and that may as well be the motto for the folks behind this booth, the nonprofit Colorado Black Health Collaborative. Richardson, who's 63, is one of its founders, and she's talking vaccines with patrons of the Arts Festival. I don't try to force people to get the uh-huh. vaccine, but I try to encourage people. That's the way we yeah. get back to... I just ain't there yet. Yeah, no, I know. I ain't there yeah. yet. So why aren't you there yet? What's going on with you? That Richardson is here, providing her best advice is notable on two counts. One, she's an MD. Two, she's out here on her own time, even though she just retired after a 34-year career as an internist and primary care doc, the last half at Kaiser Permanente, Colorado. I'm going to continue to work as long as I can. When I say work, I mean right now it's volunteering is my work. At the heart of that volunteer work, an innovative health outreach program she pioneered at barbershops and salons like this one on East Colfax in Denver. And the name of your business is? Winning Coiffures. And the winning came from the lady that originally started. The shopper name was Mrs. Wynn. That's owner Rosalind Redwine. Her shop teams with houseplants. Taking a break from styling the hair of elderly Denverites, 
She sings Richardson's praises. Well, I believe with what she does and coming out to the community, not behind her desk and not behind the Kaiser doors, but she's out in the community. I believe she's leaving an impression on a lot of people. She surely has stepped an impression on my life. Volunteers from the collaborative, like Richardson, come to shops with free health education materials, diabetes screening, HIV testing, and blood pressure screening which once helped Redwine. I believe that it saved my life. Yes, I do. Richardson says she learned of a dangerous but treatable kidney problem. Her blood pressure really was high and it was related to the kidney disease. So, yeah, remember that? And she was like, you guys saved my life. And we're like, no, we were just here to kind of serve the community. Richardson's career helping people in Denver started not far away at George Washington High, where she excelled at school. Following in the footsteps of a black woman student a year ahead of her, she applied and got into Stanford. But I heard a lot of comments from, you know, some of my white classmates that I took this person's spot and that person's spot. And I'm like, my academics were great. So it really wasn't like I was just doing affirmative action. That's what they were implying. At Stanford, she thrived, took science classes, and then went to Yale Medical School before coming back to residency at Denver Health. And she found her life's mission treating a diverse pool of patients in a clinic downtown. And I remember my mom telling me that a guy she knew said, why is your daughter working down there at that clinic? She's been to all these top schools and she's working down there at a ghetto clinic? And my mom says that's what she wants to do. She bonded with her patients, making the occasional unofficial house call or giving a patient a ride home. You know, I gave some people a ride. They're like, I got to get on the bus. I was like, you can barely stand, you know. I'll give you a ride home, and then I'll check in with you tomorrow. So it's kind of like old-fashioned doctoring. Later, she moved to Kaiser's East Denver office. One colleague, Dr. Hanna Polotsky, says it was known as the United Nations Clinic. It had perhaps the most diverse patient population and staff something for which Richardson vocally advocated. That's one of the things that Terry always taught us. Your doctors and your staff need to look like your patients. But the number of women, black, and Hispanic doctors in Colorado still lags behind their share of the population. Black women represent almost 2% of Coloradans, but less than 1% of all Colorado physicians. Richardson is emphatic that healthcare systems need to do more and the disparities of the pandemic have shown why. You have to do the work. Because sometimes people want to say, oh, yeah, we want to diversify, but we can't find anybody. Well, this requires work. One of the ways Richardson has worked to make a difference was the creation a decade ago of the Colorado Black Health Collaborative, an advocacy group dedicated to health equity. Co-founder Cerise Hunt calls her a trusted voice. We're losing a champion. When any health issue comes up, I would ask Terry. What's going on with COVID? What's the real truth behind it? And so she's such a pioneer and a beacon for truth, and she truly had a love for community. But with her departure from her primary care practice... She left a big void. That's her colleague Daniel Onyema. He's from Nigeria and worked with Richardson at Kaiser for more than a decade. He says she was a go-to for mentoring staff and students. Well, I'm going to miss her very much. Well, I got her number, so... <laughs> So I'm going to get hold of her anytime because my daughter wants to be a medical doctor. So I've already told her she's going to mentor her. And she agreed. Onyema says she's been a role model for many doctors, nurses, other staff, 
Even patients, who Richardson admits have pleaded with her to stay, saying, What are we going to do? I saw him at the Black Arts Festival. We don't have a doctor. I was like, you know what? (laughs) You're going to have to learn a little bit more on self-advocacy. As for her legacy, she's not worried about that. I'm just here to do what I'm supposed to do. And I feel like I was led to medicine for a purpose. I just tried to do the best that I could, you know, to help people. And after a decades-long career, Dr. Terry Richardson and her patients think she's fulfilled that objective. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Let's talk about Colorado's challenges to build that more diverse community of doctors now. Dr. Terry Richardson and John Daly are both here. Welcome to you both. Good morning, Avery. Good morning. Cerise Hunt is also with us. She's Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and the Director for the Center of Public Health Practice at Colorado School of Public Health at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Cerise Hunt, welcome. Oh, good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Dr. Lily Cervantes is an Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health. Hello, Dr. Cervantes. Hi. Thank you for having me. John, help us get a lay of the land. When you started your research for this story, you found that the number of women, Black and Hispanic doctors, lags behind their share of the population. But it was hard to track those numbers down, right? Yeah, very hard. I reached out to the state health department and other state agencies. They didn't have this information to share. Apparently, they're not tracking it. Same thing with doctors groups in the state, but I found a researcher at UCLA who's been tracking this nationally, and he was able to get me numbers for Colorado. And what did he find? You know, he compared the percentage of doctors in Colorado by race and ethnicity in 2015 through 2019 with two decades earlier. Over that period of time, the doctor labor force has grown more diverse for sure, but it's been slow. And his research found the percentage of Black, Hispanic, and Asian men and women doctors grew, in some cases nearly doubling over that time period. But the percentage of Black and Hispanic doctors in 2015 to 2019 was still less than their relative share of Colorado's population for both women and men. And Avery, this mirrors uh, the trends that we see nationally. Okay, I want to know more about that. Can you give me some more details? Yeah, so black women represent almost 2% of Coloradans, but less than 1% of all Colorado physicians. The number for black men are a bit higher, uh, but still below their share of the population. Same for Hispanic men and women physicians. Each group represents more than 10% of the state's population, but a much smaller share of the physician the, the physician population. Uh, A couple of other groups stand out. Asian men and women each represent about 5% of the doctors, and that's more than double their share of the general population. So in digging into all these numbers, I'd assume white doctors are the biggest group? Yeah, that's right. 20 years ago, about half of all Colorado doctors were white men. Now, as the doctor workforce has grown more diverse, it's about a third white men and a third white women. So big picture, the doctor workforce is getting more diverse, but slowly, and it's still predominantly male. So we're going to go deeper into the reasons healthcare is slow to diversify and understand those numbers a little better in a moment. But first, Dr. Cervantes, What difference does the lack of diversity make to patients? Thank you for that question. Um, You know, it's a huge difference. I think that to achieve health equity, diversifying the healthcare workforce is absolutely the right thing to do. 
Um, research has found that um, Latino and Black patients prefer to be treated by physicians who mirror the same demographics. And of course, it's also important to connect with someone who speaks your language. And so, you know, when you think about disparities, this is a community that's growing. Uh, they're expected to be the majority by 2050. Um, in fact, one study from JAMA in 2014 found that uh, racial and ethnic minority physicians are more likely to provide care to the underserved and those who are uninsured in Medicaid. And so I think that, you know, as we think about um, how we can best serve racial and ethnic minority patients in the state, we really, really, really need to, as uh, Dr. Terry Richardson said, think about how we can move, work together to increase diversity in the workforce. And Dr. Terry Richardson, how do you see health outcomes affected by that lack of diversity in the workforce? You know, when you um, read the literature, they do mention that uh, black patients that are served by black physicians have better health outcomes. So this is not just a numbers game, but a health equity and health outcome uh, issue. And what are some of the reasons why, like, that go into it? Are people less likely to get screenings or people more likely to get screenings if they are treated by somebody who represents them or who looks like them? Well, well, first of all, people don't even come through the doors. They don't go to the doctors if they don't feel comfortable, if they know if they, they don't know their provider, their provider doesn't look like them. They may not even come into the office. Um, John had mentioned the barbershop salon program. We meet people all the time there that have health insurance, but they have not been into the doctor. So we encourage them to go in, use the health insurance that you have. And if people have a provider that looks like them, that understands their challenges, understands the history of being black in America, they will come in and more likely get screened. Nothing's 100%. Not all black patients want a black doctor, but you're more likely to get them to come in and at least talk with their doctor and start doing some of the routine screening or addressing the issues that they may have had for a while. And Cerise Hunt, I'd love for you to weigh in here too. How do you see the effect of this lack of diversity affecting people? Um, well, as, as Terry has, as Dr. Richards has stated, is there that we're not represented, people do not trust, folks are not seeking care. And so if folks aren't seeking care, then that perpetuates the inequities. Um, when I think about being in an academic institution, there's an underrepresentation of people of color, you know, in our academic institutions, in our communities, in, in, and all across the, you know, across the field. And so it just, it continues to just perpetuate inequities that we're seeing in health outcomes. And that's what we're trying to dismantle as a community. We've talked about the problems that come with the lack of diversity in the physician workforce in Colorado. I want to get into the why. Starting with you, Dr. Terry Richardson, what do you think is behind that lack of diversity among physicians and healthcare workers in Colorado and nationally? You know, I think there's a serious pipeline issue. It starts... Uh, at the very young ages, no exposure to black physicians by young people who potentially could come become our physicians. Uh, the number of students in medical school, diversity in medical schools, it can really be an issue. I think that more schools are trying to do a better job with that, but medical school is also very expensive. And then even if you get scholarships, even here in Colorado, housing has become so expensive, even if you get monies to attend medical school, you may not have enough money to, to have a place to stay. 
And then once, uh, if you do get into medical school, uh, a lot of times residency programs are not as diverse as they should be. I know when I was completing my residency here in Colorado, I was like the only black person. There was someone maybe three years before me who had been in the residency program. So if you don't have residents, it's hard to then have a, a pool of doctors to attract to uh, the facilities here in Colorado and to become doctors here in Colorado. So I'll stop there because I'm sure others have comments as well. Cerise Hunt, how does this look from your perspective at the Colorado School of Public Health? Okay, so, you know, from my perspective, you know, the problem is the underrepresentation of our, as, as John stated earlier, the Black, Indigenous, and Latinx in our academic institutions across the state. So we as a state, we need to ensure students of color have access to high quality education that provides the mean for an individual to pursue a career in the health profession, which requires support for educational pipeline programs as uh, Dr. Richards had stated, Dr. Richardson has stated. Um, and I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with educational pipeline programs, but it's a multifaceted pathway all Colorado students need this pathway through which students travel in order to achieve their ultimate educational um, potential. And so we, and I'm saying this, we as a state need to really strengthen the educational pipeline. And when I say pathway, from primary to secondary to post-secondary education, and ultimately to the health profession career. So we're going to start off with kindergarten. I think it's great we have all day kindergarten, but we got to ensure from kindergarten, our kindergartners, those thriving young minds, we have plenty of students of color in Colorado, these bright, young, brilliant children, because you got to be set up for, um, you know, the health careers. You know, you have to take the AP courses. And so we, we, you know, so we need our students grounded and rooted in science, technology, and math starting in kindergarten and being built up and having that. So then they can excel in these advanced placement courses, those international bachelorette programs, all these programs that are offered. And they're aware of these supports through their educational pathway, through this pipeline. Because right now there's leaks in our pipeline because historically there's been an underrepresentation of students of color in our institutions of higher education. And we need to do better as a state. So in terms of education, it has to begin at the very beginning. And creating a more diverse healthcare workforce is a long-term challenge. In the meantime, that lack of diversity is negatively affecting people's health care, particularly in marginalized communities. Is there already or should there be a strategy in Colorado or nationally to address this? Dr. Cervantes, I'd love for you to start. Thank you for that question. You know, there should be more effort. There should be more resources, more manpower focused on increasing diversity in our state, Um, at least from the Latino perspective, you know, they compose 21% of the state's population, but lag behind in high school graduation and entering four-year colleges. And um, as Cerise Hunt mentioned, there's high attrition of students in college. And so as far as a state effort and national effort, more needs to be done. And from my perspective and experience, I think that we need to change the narrative. We need to invest in our own. What I have seen oftentimes is that medical schools tend to compete with each other for the same small number of racial and ethnic minority pre-med applicants. 
And um, both Dr. Richardson and Dr. Hunt have mentioned how important it is to really start early because what we need to do is cultivate a larger number of students from Colorado that apply to medical school, that apply to the School of Public Health. And the best way to do that is to have these pathway or pipeline programs starting earlier. Um, and there are some in the state of Colorado. There's one called Faces for the Future, which is focused at Manual High School, where over 60% of the kids are racial ethnic minority students. They provide wraparound services. To, it's a two-year program, and they've been around for five years, and all of their kids have graduated from high school. But it's really investing in the kids that are struggling, not the kids that are already have a great GPA. Um, the last thing I want to mention is that when we invest in our own, because their families are here in Colorado, they're more likely to come back to Colorado once they're done with their training. They're more likely to want to stay here because their family is here. And you mentioned that coming back to Colorado, all three of you went through Denver Public Schools and decided to pursue your careers in Denver. We're talking a lot about the challenges and systemic problems when it comes to diversity in healthcare. I wonder, what is giving you hope, Dr. Richardson? Uh... <laughs> Do I have to answer that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am, I, my friends sometimes say I'm pessimistic. I say I'm a realist. Mm. Um, I'm hopeful when I see young people coming in and saying, wow, you know, there's a black doctor. Perhaps I can be that. So I think that that has served as, I've served as a model for both uh, young people and people in the middle but I wouldn't say that I'm extremely hopeful because I don't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. This issue is not brand new. It's been going on for a long time and I just don't see what work is being done. I think the, the medical school now is having a, a more holistic view of medical student applications. They're really trying to diversify. I think that's a credit to the current dean and staff there, but will that be sustainable? I think we've got to work much harder uh, before I really can say that I'm hopeful. So I'll leave it at that. I want to thank you so much for your perspective and thank you all for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Terry Richardson is a recently retired primary care doctor and community health care leader. Cerise Hunt is Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Colorado School of Public Health. Dr. Lily Cervantes is an Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health. And we heard earlier from John Daly, CPR's health reporter. When we come back... Where's Ryan headed next on the Colorado Matters road trip? Plus, the Purplish team asks, can party politics really be taken out of redistricting? I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News and KRCC. During the pandemic, music really felt like a lifeline for me in a really deep way. And that's the wonderful thing about music. It helps us process things and it makes us feel things. I'm Rebecca Romberg. And I'm Luis Antonio Perez. And we've got a new podcast called Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations that can help inspire great conversations about music from cultures all over the world. Music Blocks, CPR's newest podcast for music lovers of all genres and ages, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. And we are on the road again. Ryan's next stop is Fort Morgan on Colorado's northeastern plains. Hi, Ryan. 
Hi, Avery. Fort Morgan's diverse. About a third of the population identifies as Hispanic or Latino based on the latest census data. I understand we're visiting a school with a cultural immersion program. That's right. Producer Carla Jimenez profiles one of the classes at Columbine Elementary. It's the first school in Morgan County to offer a dual Spanish and English immersion program. And that means kids learn in one language for half the day and the other for the second half. And this is to build bilingualism and cultural camaraderie. Uh, The school is really creative and tight-knit. When Carla met the principal, Nick Ng, His thumb was wrapped in purple gauze. She asked him about the injury, and there's quite a backstory. When I joined Columbine five years ago, we, as a team, as a school, we acknowledged that we needed to change the culture of the school. And so the teachers came up with the house system. It's very similar to Harry, the Harry Potter house system, and it, it spoke to my heart coming from boarding school. And so we've created these four houses. All the students are sorted into four houses. And every week, every Wednesday afternoon, we have house time where we address social-emotional needs and, and socializing between all the grades. It's incredible. And it's driven by the teachers. So every year we get a a new batch of first graders and I put on my wizard hat, as you see up there behind me, it says headmaster, and I have a magic wand. This this wand fits in your hand and uh, it's it's a spring-loaded wand and I've performed this trick 50 to 100 times and unfortunately, just on Friday, I had um, a little mishap. It, it didn't quite go off the correct way, and I ended up in the hospital uh, needing some stitches. Uh, <laughs> so we will not be doing that trick again. I'm researching a, a different, safer trick for next year. Uh, Carla also spoke with students, so much more tomorrow. Oh, wow. I cannot wait to hear that. Uh, Fort Morgan's unemployment rate is actually lower than the state average. There's a ton of agriculture, a meatpacking plant. And, Rye, you'll report on revitalization of downtown? That's right. And at the heart of it is a century-old movie theater on Main Street, which is where we'll meet Donnie Edson. When we bought the movie theater, there were eight empty buildings on Main Street on the block that we're in. And growing up, I don't know if it's just my childhood memories, but it seemed like downtown was always a lot busier than it is now. And so one of our goals when we bought the movie theater was to be able to buy other buildings and start to fix them up and drive people downtown again. I heard you also shared a bittersweet moment with a restaurant owner. Bittersweet for sure. Throughout the pandemic, we've checked in with Danette Garlis. She's now a former restaurant owner. Life has thrown her a few curveballs. Garlis recently sold Elaine's Place, a Greek restaurant here in Fort Morgan named after her late mother. Uh, She's told me, though, that she's surprised a buyer came forward for the restaurant at all. I mean, we didn't get the money that we should have got out of it, but I'm all about God always gives you the right time, (laughs) you know? And so I said, hmm, okay, it's time, you know? And I think you said earlier that you felt you had your mom's blessing. I think so. Yes, I did. Yep, I, I do. Otherwise, she wouldn't have brought me to buy her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we'll find out what Danette Garlis is up to now, tomorrow, from Fort Morgan. We're looking forward to it. Thank you, Ryan. You're so welcome. Ryan Warner will host live from Morgan County tomorrow. Next week, I'll be on the road, starting in Grand Junction, then the Four Corners and the San Luis Valley. 
Many voters backed Colorado's new redistricting commissions in order to get politics out of the process. But there's still plenty that's political, from which party sees the most advantage in the new process to how different interests are rallying their troops to sway the commissions. Today, the Purplish team continues their special series as the state's district boundaries are redrawn. Here are public affairs reporters Caitlin Kim and Benta Berkland. How do you take the politics out of something inherently political, like redistricting? Throw out phrases like, let's get the politicians out of it. Maps in the past were gerrymandered, and that was just a bunch of bull. I think they would like people to have to make compromise, move away from the polarities, and move closer to more people who are in the center. Is it possible to create political maps without thinking about politics? Should you even try? This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this season, our public affairs team is focused on all things redistricting. I'm Benta Berkland here with our Washington, D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim. Hi, Benta. Hey, so we're happy to have you in Colorado to tape this in person. I'm used to seeing you behind a screen at the nation's capital. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to be seen in 3D for a change. Colorado is one of about 10 states using independent bipartisan commissions to draw new maps. That means for the first time in the state's history, lawmakers have no role in redistricting. And as we mentioned in our first episode of this season of Purplish, voters overwhelmingly approved this new process three years ago. A major goal was to make redistricting less political and more fair. Right. And I've talked to a lot of people who are hopeful about the process. But I will say behind that hope, I think there is a certain amount of realism because in the end, this is all about politics and power. Yeah. And these final maps could shape the balance of power in Washington, D.C., between Democrats and Republicans nationally, obviously impacts state legislatures Mm -hmm. and how different groups are represented for the next decade. Yes. I have kind of heard from a lot of Democrats that, you know, Democrats here control the state house, they control the governor's office, and they're using this commission. But there are other states, as you know, where Republicans have this kind of control, and they're not using commissions. So there's this idea that Republicans are using uh, the non-commission process, the legislative processes in their states, to cement their advantage, both in the U.S. House and in state legislatures. Right. And I talked to State Senator Jeff Bridges. He's from the Denver suburbs, and he's one of the more moderate Democrats in the legislature. And he says it gives him a bit of a heartburn to think about the potential national implications of which states are using these commissions Mm -hmm. compared to the states that aren't using commissions. In red states, we're seeing fewer legislatures being willing to give up that power to an independent commission. And so there is a danger that you will have legislatures in red states drawing districts that minimize the voice of certain people in their state and end up sending a predominantly one-sided delegation to Congress, whereas in more progressive states, you have a representative group of people from that state going to represent that state in Washington, which I think is better. Right. So I I would say it's probably not such a big deal if Colorado does it. It's only really eight House seats that are Mm -hmm. in question. But when you think about some of the bigger Democratic states that are doing this, like California, 
which has dozens of House right. seats, it does start to be significant, um, especially when the biggest sort of Republican-led states like Texas and Florida, who also have dozens of seats, don't. So Bridges, I'm just curious, does he support the fact that Colorado decided to use independent commissions? He actually does, yes. And the legislature backed this idea unanimously and referred the question to voters. And it's definitely not a small feat to get every state lawmaker to agree on something like this around redistricting. Bridges says even though Democrats do control Colorado's government right now, he's glad they're not in charge of drawing maps, especially because his party may not always be in power especially in the next redistricting cycle 10 years from now. Even Massachusetts had a Republican governor, right? There is no such thing as a permanent majority. And so setting up the structures and mechanisms of governing in such a way that they are fair and representative and that they are constructed to make sure that the will of the people of Colorado is represented in their legislature and in their congressional delegation is always the right thing to do. You know, I didn't cover Colorado politics back then in 2018 when amendments Y and Z were passed, but it does make sense to me that Democrats would support this. I mean, the state back then had a Republican senator. You know, there were more Republicans than Democrats in the House delegation. Three out of the four statewide offices were held by Republicans. So it seems like Democrats would feel like they're they would, they would have been better off with commissions. Well, and we also had a split state legislature. Republicans controlled the state Senate and Democrats controlled the House. But actually, Democrats weren't initially as enthusiastic about this as you might think. The story I heard was Republicans were going to put something on the ballot. And Democrats weren't leading this effort, but eventually got on board and wanted to work with Republicans to get something they could all agree on. Certainly inside the state capitol, All of the lawmakers did agree. Outside of the Capitol, it was a little bit different. I talked to Wellington Webb. He's Denver's former mayor, Mm -hmm. a a Democratic power broker. Mm -hmm. He's been involved in politics a long time. He's been involved in redistricting for a long time. And he told me he thinks Republicans in Colorado were very smart to get behind this idea of an independent commission. Well, the one thing that I give Republicans credit for is when they have power, they use it. And when they lose power, they try to figure out a way to get it back. (laughs) And Democrats normally tend to go along with, let's open up this process and, and, and see how it works for everybody at their own demise. Uh, you know, one of his big things is he thinks regular citizens and that that's, these commissions are made up of regular citizens. Mm-hmm. There's so many restrictions on who can apply and they can't have close ties to politics. But he thinks people with closer ties to politics should be in charge of the process. He said the commission, quotes discriminates against experience. <laughs> wow, that is something. I, I will say, though, the people that I've been talking to, the, you know, the regular people that don't have these deep ties to politics, really seem to like the idea of using a commission. And, you know, that's what kind of sold them on the idea that that they're not these political insiders drawing lines and maps in some back room somewhere. You know, they like the fact that it's transparent. Right. And voters pass this pretty easily in Colorado. So clearly people from a lot of different political backgrounds agreed with this idea of a commission and thought it was a good thing. Though Webb says that's the equivalent of saying you're going into surgery and you don't want to have a doctor providing the surgery for you. You're going to take somebody that might have an interest in surgery and watch 
medical shows on t- on TV, Grey's Anatomy or something, and put them in charge of the surgery that you're about to have. That doesn't make sense. And no, I, I could see where the point that he's making there. I'm curious, uh, Benta, you know, we've heard a lot from unhappy Democrats, but since Republicans don't have a lot of power right now in the state, are some of them breathing a sigh of relief? I think Republicans realize the proposed maps wouldn't look this good for the GOP if Democrats were in charge of redistricting. They would have basically unilateral power to just gerrymander everything. That's Republican Representative Colin Larson talking about Democrats. In a lot of ways, Republicans kind of dodged a bullet. You know, a map can still be legal, but help one particular party over another because there is quite a bit of discretion on how you draw these maps. And the GOP in Colorado has faced some steep election losses in recent years. With statewide offices in the legislature, the U.S. Senate, they haven't had a lot to celebrate recently. Mm-hmm. Larson says these independent commissions give him hope. This is a process that can be kind of a model for the nation. You know, if we do implement this process kind of around the country, I hopefully we'll see that, you know, seep into our national politics where it's less of a tribalistic, you know, us versus them and more of a battle of ideas, um, you know, where people are still human beings in your neighbor. You just disagree with them on certain policy issues and you argue over that, but you don't view them as the enemy, which I think unfortunately is what we've kind of devolved into. Yeah, you know, that is a great kind of, I would say at this this point in time, very lofty goal to achieve. I don't feel like we're seeing that, especially if anyone looks at political Twitter. I mean, I I think you you have kind of seen a devolution of, of the way people refer to each other. And you're in D.C. covering Congress, so you, you have a more upfront view of this than most of us. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's it's nice to dream big like Colin Larson is doing. I will say, though, he has to like what he's been seeing with the draft map. Colorado could have a congressional delegation now that's evenly split with four Democrats and four Republicans in a state that's not really purple right now. <laughs> Purple-ish. Lynn, don't make us change the name of this podcast. We'll put the emphasis on ish. Ish, yes. (laughs) You know, as I think about what political people were saying right after the map came out, no one was full-throated, excited, or angry. They all just wanted to see how it will change. But of course, they haven't just been sitting around waiting for the commission to do its work. Probably the biggest way to influence the 12-member commission is by getting people who agree with your perspective to show up at a public hearing or send in written comments. And we've seen organizations from the right and left urging people to weigh in on these maps. Yeah, I've listened in on a couple of these public hearings. I know you have and Andy has as well. And I went to one and there seemed to be a lot, a lot of former mayors or city council members or county commissioners testifying about these maps. You know, why some lines make sense to them, but more often why they don't and who they think they should be grouped with or why their county or city should not be divided. I talked to attorney Mario Nicolai and he served on a commission 10 years ago to draw statehouse maps. And he was a Republican uh, appointed to the commission. He's now unaffiliated. And he said he doesn't think people can really expect regular Coloradans, citizens to participate in these hearings, in part because it's so technical. You know, I don't know that the public was all that fully engaged before. I mean, this is uh, redistricting is a very, very inside baseball for a lot of people. And and it's got a lot more complexity and nuance than most of the public is willing to engage in um, and thinking about. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I don't know that it's all that different than it was was in years past. 
you know, I think he does have a point. I've spoken to people on the street who say, you know, they are political and they they keep abreast of that stuff, but they hadn't heard at all about redistricting Mm. or the process. And, you know, as for the people who are testifying, look, I don't know their deep motivations or if they're pushing one party or the other, but they had their opinions and they voiced them. Again, usually about the counties or cities they don't want to be clumped with. Right. And depending upon if you do remove or add a county or city, it can pretty dramatically change the political makeup of a district and how competitive it will be. So Mm -hmm. I'm always wondering in the back of my mind, are these genuine concerns or is it people trying to influence the map to help a particular political party? Right. And we've heard stories about that, right? We have, yes. The Colorado Springs Gazette recently reported on a video which they obtained, and it showed Republican Representative Matt Soper. He's from Delta on the Western Slope, and he was in this video meeting with a small group of Republicans and essentially telling them some language they could use at a public hearing and what they would maybe want to say. And the the goal is to protect Republican seats, but telling people not to use those terms outright, you can't go before the commission and say that's what you're trying to do. Right. And I think the reason this story got so much traction was because he said the quiet part out loud in this in this little group training, but not. Right. So, but don't say that quiet part out loud in front of the commission. <laughs> exactly. It is why it got some traction. I talked to Representative Soper and he said, look, he doesn't regret anything he said. Um, and he told me, quote, it's not like I was convincing people to do something they weren't already interested in and willing to do already. They wanted to participate in redistricting. They wanted to hear what makes a community of interest. And so Soper noted that the group he was talking to in this video, you know, that the handful of folks were pretty conservative Republicans. And he he thinks they would have been pretty shocked if Soper didn't talk about ways to go before the commission and speak that would help Republicans and help the GOP. Um, Because a lot of people in both political parties They have their policies that they're supporting and that, you know, they want certain people elected. Mm -hmm. And so we do see this from groups across the political spectrum, but we usually don't hear the audio and it may not be quite as obvious. Right. And look, we've alluded to this in the last episode and we'll be talking about this throughout the series. But um, the community of interest is such a broad term. Mm -hmm. You know, you can help a politician. You can keep a conservative area whole. You can keep a liberal area whole. It just encompasses so many different things to different people. Yeah, I actually called up the commission staff and talked to Jessica Shipley. She's the staff director and asked her a little bit about kind of the manufactured testimony. Mm -hmm. And like you said, because the categories are pretty broad, like community of interest, you know, how do the commissioners react to that type of thing. And she said the commissioners expect testimony with an agenda that maybe was prompted by someone and there's no way to prevent that. But she said the commissioners really don't like it when people aren't up front about who they're affiliated with. If they are working for or have ties to a political party or an advocacy organization. They want those people to be registered as lobbyists with Secretary of State. And when they're not, they feel, well, I can't say how they feel. It appears that something, you know, shady or sketchy is going on. And that makes it hard to to take what those people are saying and feel like it's completely honest and true. Right. So if you look online, I think there are about three pages of disclosures about who can actually lobby the commission. Yeah. And and to to make it clear, to be 
a lobbyist or required to register, a person has to be getting paid to talk to the commissioners to try to influence these maps. So I was looking online at the lobbying disclosures and I recognized some of the names and mostly Democrats. Um, I have been hearing concerns that not every group or some, some people behind the scenes aligned with Republicans are not registering. Okay. So bottom line is you have a lot of groups and politicians encouraging people to make their opinions known. But as long as they're not getting paid by that group or politician or political party, they are not lobbying. Right. And Shipley said, look, even if you're registered, it doesn't discount your testimony. I mean, Mm -hmm. they still want to hear from people. Um, And a lot of times you can be a lobbyist and have a lot of expertise and political knowledge. And that's why you're working for a political party. So that can add value to your testimony before the commission. She did say, interestingly, that the commissioners do check to see if the people reaching out to them are registered as lobbyists. Um, And if somebody thinks a person is not registered and should be, you can file a complaint with the Colorado Secretary of State's office. I will say one of the things that I have heard is that transparency was like sort of a major selling point about the independent redistricting process. And Colorado's redistricting commissions are kind of based on the premise that a knowledgeable public will inform them about, you know, what their communities of interest are, where their sort of alignments should be. And there's certainly an opportunity with public hearings throughout the state in person and virtual hearings. The staff of the commission said by the end of this, Colorado will have had more than 30 public hearings. But then the other thing that we have to keep in mind is even at our our busiest meeting where we had 60 some people testify over the course of three or four hours, that's still just 60 people from a particular community. And it does it represent those people? You know, does having a county commissioner coming out really represent everybody in that community? And we're obviously we know that it doesn't. Yeah, I, I will say this, and this might be the political nerd in me talking, but <laughs> I do think people should be engaged because this process, this does have consequences for the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, Democrats only have a five seat majority in the House of Representatives, and that could be totally wiped away just through redistricting, like not mm. even elections and campaigns. So it matters whether the maps that Colorado lands on favor a 4-4 split delegation versus a 5-3 delegation with a majority of Democrats. Mm -hmm. I I do think a lot of people will be interested in the eventual outcome of what this all means, what the maps look like, how competitive the seats are, but it's mostly going to be shaped by political insiders. Still not politicians like a lot of states, which, you know, the politicians are directly drawing the maps. Mm -hmm. And we'll actually get to see how much of that public input, lobbying, Efforts to influence the maps will impact these final maps. I asked one of the staff members to give me a little bit of a preview, and she did say she expects the maps to change pretty significantly. Um, And we'll get a first look at the updated congressional map with the final census figures Labor Day weekend. Working on a holiday. Now you know, you thought you may be going to a barbecue. (laughs) I'll be spending it virtually with you instead. Yay. A quick update because the news doesn't stop. After we recorded this episode of Purplish, something we talked about as a possibility actually happened. One of the Democrats who is registered to lobby the redistricting commission filed a complaint on behalf of a voter alleging that three prominent Republicans had been lobbying the commission without registering as lobbyists. 
The complaint is now in the hands of the Colorado Secretary of State's office. CPR Public Affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim. Hear this and other episodes about redistricting at Apple, NPR One, and wherever you get your podcasts, and online at CPR.org. And we'll continue this special series here on Colorado Matters next week as the redistricting maps are finalized over Labor Day weekend. And that is our show for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to John Penno and Megan Burley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.